How are we doing, everybody? My name is Kelvin, he, him pronouns, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive through the internet, books, Wikipedia, whatever I can find, and try to figure out about a niche topic or event from history that I find interesting and explain it to my friends. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I use she, her pronouns. Hey, I'm Ryan, and I use he, him pronouns. Hi, guys, and hopefully they will provide some colorful and witty commentary today as I tell them uh, this story. Are y'all ready? Yes. Go. Down the rabbit hole we go. So are y'all ready for the Tokyo Olympics coming up at the time of recording at the end of the week? Yes. I've been waiting two years for these things. Two years, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and 2021. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What's y'all's favorite event to be watching? What are you most looking forward to? Hmm. It's a tough question. If I'm going to be honest, I just kind of flip them on whenever they're on and it doesn't really matter the event to me. I just kind of watch it. <laughs> I really like the swimming and the track stuff. And then gymnastics and beach volleyball are always really fun to watch. Nice. Solid choices. Personally, I don't have really any idea how the sport is played, but I am a fan of water polo. I have a story about water polo at the Olympics. Okay. Oh, really? So I think it was the 2008 Olympics. I fell asleep watching some stuff. You know, some of the stuff comes on at like 3 a.m., right? Or at least that's when it's broadcasted here in the U.S. So I fell asleep on the couch watching, I don't remember what. And I like woke up at like 2 or 3 a.m. and it was water polo. And I was like, I've never seen water polo. I'll watch this. And I watched for five minutes. Because at the end of like that five minutes, two of the guys were like trying to get to the ball or whatever. I don't know. And one of them like grabbed the swimsuit of the other one and pulled it down. And I saw the guy's entire butt. And then like (laughs) me was like, oh no, I'm going to get in trouble because I saw someone's butt on TV. And so I turned it off and I ran to bed. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did you learn how to play water polo though? (laughs) No, because I only watched for five minutes. <laughs> uh, uh, 2008 Olympics were probably the, like I remember watching the opening ceremony for that, but um, the first like real Olympics I remember watching events and stuff on purpose was probably uh, the London Olympics in 2012. Mm. Those were a good Olympics, and I also had the Mario and Sonic at the 
at the, the Olympic Games. Olympics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the Wii. I was obsessed with that game, specifically with the like trampoline one. I was so good at it. I could beat anyone in that game. <laughs> well, that's uh, not Mario and Sonic uh, Wii game. That That's another topic today, but we will be talking about uh, one of the earliest uh olympic events that were ever held the modern olympiad began in 1896 first games were held in athens and they were very small but they were a huge success and very popular and so they held another game four years later in paris and then another game in 1904 in St. Louis. But because of the events at the 1904 St. Louis Olympics, it, there was a huge question on whether or not the Olympics would continue because they were not as successful and really humiliating, especially compared to like a modern Olympic game. It was just terribly run. And so we are going to be delving into the 1904 Olympiad in St. Louis, Missouri. Let's get some background information here. The U.S. at the time uh, had a population of just over 76 million, and St. Louis was the fourth most populous city in the country with 575,000 people And New York City had just shy of three and a half million people, which is less than half of what it is today. Theodore Roosevelt was president and the U.S., along with most of the Western world at the time, was enveloped in the project of colonialism, which you got to love. But a byproduct of this was that the different nations of the world needed to you know, show off their wealth and the exotic nature of their foreign lands. And it was really just a giant pissing contest between the different Western imperialist nations. And one of the ways this manifested was the phenomena of world's fairs or expositions. And these expositions would last for about for several months and were a huge source for popular entertainment and education at the time, as well as, you know, an excuse to show off how good we are, just how advanced are we as different countries around the world. Makes sense, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, gotta gotta see how good we're doing. Yeah. And so... The most famous of these events were the Great Exhibition of 1851 in London, um, 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, the 1878 Paris Exposition Universelle, or however you pronounce it, I don't speak French, um, and the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago um, in 1893. These were very popular and had millions of people show up to them and they were showcasing some of the best things technology at the time alexander graham bell's first telephone the statue of liberty the ferris wheel in order of importance 
right there, you know? <laughs> and so, but why am I talking about the World's Fair whenever this episode is supposedly about the Olympics? Well, in 1904, the Olympics were originally supposed to be held in Chicago. But in 1903, St. Louis was hosting the Louisiana Purchase Exposition to celebrate the centennial anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase, except nobody could plan anything, and so they had to hold it a year late in 1904. This meant that two cities were hosting these gigantic events at the same time, and they're very close to each other. And so this wasn't going to fly because they are going to be competing for the same attendees. Well, St. Louis threatened that they would hold their own, not technically Olympic Games, but they would hold their own athletic events if Chicago went ahead and hold, held the Olympics. And so the Olympics were moved to St. Louis. So St. Louis stole the Olympic hosting titles. But that's not all, because the Russo-Japanese War um, between Japan and Russia uh, was going on at the time. And so international tensions were extremely high, and this might have contributed to the fact that very few people showed up from outside of the country. In fact, the U.S. had a very great showing because of this. 526 of the 651 athletes were from America. <laughs> okay. USA number one. Yeah, <laughs> it, um, it was our greatest uh, Olympics as far as like medal ratios in the number of events that we meddled in just because we were the only people there, basically. Yeah, this was actually the first Olympics that the gold, silver, and bronze medals were used at. But, you know, despite the fact that not a whole lot of people showed up, there were some impressive athletic capabilities shown at these Olympics. Um, for example, in gymnastics, a man named George Iser won six medals, three gold, two silver, and a bronze in a single day. And he did so with his left leg being a wooden prosthetic. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, it's very impressive because it wouldn't be until 2008 that another person with an artificial leg would compete in the Olympics. Wow. it's a long time. Yeah. And so another impressive showing was Frank, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, Kugler. Um, he remains to this day the only Olympic athlete that has medaled in three different sports at the same Olympics. He got one silver in heavyweight wrestling. He got two bronze in weightlifting events, and he got one bronze 
in tug of war, because yes, tug of war was an Olympic event until <laughs> 1920. Why'd they pull it? Come on. That'd be, so, that'd be so much fun to watch. And you know, it's just, they, they couldn't handle it. I guess it was just too, too competitive for them. But, um, <laughs> also, uh, you know, you got to take this with a grain of salt because in one of Kugler's weightlifting events, he got last place in nine of the 10 events that were like grouped together for this one medal. But because there are only three competitors, he got bronze. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, he has one more. Well, I guess he has bunch more olympic medals than you do jamie even with i mean that's true i don't have any olympic medals so who am i to judge exactly but you are a runner right jamie so yes i am uh have you ever run a marathon i have not i am about to start marathon training though oh really yes well, because I mean, that's what I was working towards before my back herniated again. Oh. And then I stop. Yeah. I see. Well, if you were back in 1904 St. Louis, um, <laughs> and I guess also, you know, there were some better uh, gender equality back in the day. Um, you might have been able to run in the uh, 1904 Olympic marathon. And it actually would have been easier because it would have only been 24.8 miles long instead of the now normal 26.2. So a little bit shorter. And you would have only been competing against 32 people. Wow. Maybe I would have won a medal well yeah maybe you could have but uh let me finish telling you about this marathon before you decide to uh commit to running it because it's a doozy so the route for this marathon uh was to begin with several laps around francis field which is on the campus of washington university in st louis and then the route would go out into the city and then it would loop back around to the stadium where it would end. This event was pretty notable because it had some of the best runners at the time competing, including the past three winners of the Boston Marathon. And it also is the first Olympic event that Black Africans competed in. Um, their names were Len Taunyani and John Mashiani. Hopefully I'm pronouncing those right. They were both Tswana people from South Africa. They are competing for Great Britain because, again, empire. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a very popular event, and it was supposed to be, you know, this big thing. Jamie, what is a good time of day with your experience to start a long distance run? 
what time of day. Yeah. Like what are some of the conditions that you need for it to be like a good, healthy time to go out running? Um, well, you would want to do morning because mm-hmm. it's cool in the evening, but it's much cooler in the mornings. Okay. Um, so yes. you, you wouldn't start running a marathon at three o'clock in the afternoon, whenever it's 90 degrees outside in the shade. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, uh, that's exactly what they did. Oh, geez. For uh, reference, I think marathons, like modern marathons, usually start at like 6.30, 7 a.m. You know, it's <laughs> good thing we live in modern times. Let's just yeah. say that. <laughs> but yeah, they, they started this race at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the recorded temperature in the shade uh, was 90 degrees. Of course, most of the route was not in the shade and the humidity was terrible. So it was probably felt like running in above a hundred degree weather. Jeez. And it was so bad that only 14 of the 32 competitors would cross the finish line. That's not even a a 50% completion rate. It is the single worst uh, completion percentage in all of Olympic marathon history. And today, uh, a marathon can be won in just over two hours. About this race has the single worst showing at for an Olympic marathon as it took three hours, 28 minutes and 53 seconds to finish. And that was the first person. That was first place. Wow. So it was bad. And a lot of the individual runners that competed in this event, they all have very weird stories to tell. So I will tell you about some of them. (laughs) John Lorden, who was the winner of the 1903 Boston Marathon. You know, so he knows what he's doing. He gives up two blocks away from the stadium because he has started vomiting profusely. That's, and he got off easy. But the winner of the previous year's Boston Marathon gives up two blocks into the race route. That's how bad this thing is. Another runner, William Garcia. He was found. At around the 19th mile of the route, lying on the side of the road and had a car not driven past him, he would have been the first recorded fatality at the Olympics. Why? Because the roads were not paved and the race officials were driving cars down these dirt roads, you know, showing them which route they're going because it is right in the middle of the city. And these cars didn't give the runners a whole lot of space. And so they're kicking up a lot of dust. Garcia was hospitalized because he had inhaled and swallowed so much dust that he had sanded off the lining of his esophagus and stomach, which caused massive hemorrhaging in his chest. Hey. But... A car drove by, saw that he was in trouble, and managed to 
get him to the hospital in time. Hmm. Maybe I don't want to run in this one. Oh, you sure? I still got more. Hold on. Um, Len Taunyani and Jen Mashiani, they finished ninth and 12th place respectively, which, you know, is impressive. Taunyani ran barefoot through this race um, and he finished ninth. Uh, and a lot of people thought he could have done better if he wasn't chased off course by feral dogs partway through the route. <laughs> um, you're talking. You're talking about the the lack of planning when it comes to even setting up, you know, the Olympics in general. Mm-hmm. And then once they eventually were able to plan this, this is what they came up with. This is what they get. Yes. Um, <laughs> but just prepare yourselves because probably the most uh, astounding athlete that came out of this event was Cuban runner Felix de la Caridad Carvajal y Soto, also known as Felix or Adrian Carvajal. He was not a competitive runner. He had never run a marathon before. He had never raced competitively before. He was a mailman from Cuba, but the Cuban Olympic Committee had not invited him to compete in this race. (laughs) So what is he doing here? Well, he wanted to be in these Olympics really badly. And so he had put on running exhibitions in Cuba to raise money to get him to the United States. Um. What that constitutes, I guess, you know, he would just walk or run places and people would give him money because he was running. I don't know. They did weird stuff back in the old days. <laughs> one of the one of these events uh, allegedly included him running the entire 700 mile length of the island of Cuba. So I don't know about that one. I mean, this guy was committed. Yeah, he did it, but he eventually did raise enough money to get passage to the US. And so he got on a boat, went to New Orleans, arrives in the United States and proceeds to lose all of his money gambling. <laughs> okay. um, he has no money. He still needs to get to St. Louis to compete in these Olympics. So he begins hitchhiking the rest of the way or just running because this guy can do that, apparently. He arrives at the stadium and signs up to race because they just need people to compete. And he shows up in a loose-fitting, long-sleeve shirt, long johns, a belt, dress shoes, pants, and, like, a beret. He is not fit to be running at all. These are not athletic clothes. And again, it's 90 degrees outside and this man is about to run in long johns and pants. One of his fellow competitors is like, that ain't going to fly. And so they take his pants and like cut them off at the knees, but he still has his long johns on underneath it. So yeah, if you look at pictures from the time, This man looks very much out of place. 
let me share my screen here. So here's a photo of him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh yes, this definitely looks like a man that's about to run 20 plus miles. And, yeah. And here's one of him with all of his competitors. I don't know if you can see him in here. <laughs> yeah, here he is, number three, just and all the rest yeah. of them. Everybody um, in like uniforms, numbers, and everything. And he yeah. has his like taped onto his shirt. <laughs> So, yeah, this man has never run a marathon in his life. But, you know, now's the perfect time to start, right? <laughs> so they sign him up. They cut off, they've cut off his pants. He's ready to run. The race begins. He goes. And um, all this stuff I'm about to tell you comes from the Smithsonian website. So... Just take that what you will. While he's running the race, Carvajal allegedly would stop several times to conversate with the spectators in broken English. Further into the race, he got hungry, and so he stole peaches um, from a nearby truck for a snack. But after he finished those peaches, he was still hungry, and so he went and there just happened to be an apple orchard along the trail route. So he had some apples, which were apparently rotten, and that gave him a stomach ache. So <laughs> again, according to the Smithsonian, this man laid down and took a nap on the race course and then got up and finished the race. What place do you think he finished in? Uh, All third. things considered, I would say fifth. He finished fourth. Oh, dang it. Right in between. <laughs> right in between, y'all. <laughs> That's but, the real like tortoise and the hare stuff right there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But um Carvajal, guess I guess he got the uh marathon competitive running bug because a few years later he was invited by cuba's olympic committee this time to participate um, in the marathon at the 1906 olympic games in athens so he got on a ship and went to europe but after his ship arrived in italy he just disappeared and never showed up in athens and no one knew where he was, and so they presumed him dead, and they published his obituary in several Cuban newspapers. But he wasn't dead because he showed up a few months later on a boat from Spain. So he was back in Cuba, and uh, I guess they just let him off the hook because he just, you know, went on running again and just went on to live his life. So... <laughs> But okay. yeah, <laughs> that, that's our man, Carval. Another runner, Fred Lors. This is probably the most infamous runner to come out of this race. Like if you've already heard a story about these Olympics, this is probably the one that you've already heard. So Frank Lors was the first runner off of the starting line. But around nine miles into the race, 
he began to suffer severe cramps. And so he decided throw in the towel. He's out. He's not going to run this race. And so he calls for a car to take him back to the stadium. But part of the way back, the car breaks down because of course it does. And uh, it's hot outside. So he doesn't want to just sit there and he's starting to feel better. So he decides, you know, I'm just going to run back to the stadium. He's out of the race, but he's just going to run back to the stadium because he doesn't want to just sit out in the city. But he gets back to the stadium and because he took the car, he's the first person there. And uh, none of the people in the stadium watching the event knew that he quit the race. And so they just started cheering for him. He just decides to go along with it. So he enters the stadium, crosses the finish line. He has his picture taken with the president's daughter, Alice Roosevelt. Um, She places a laurel on his head and she's about to give him the first place medal before one of the reporters pointed out that uh, this guy rode in a car for half of the race. He didn't actually win. And so they confronted Lors on it. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I wasn't, you know, I was just doing a joke. <laughs> what, what was his? Joke. Yeah, what was his finishing time, though? Uh, was, this, was this even a reasonable time for a marathon or did he show up like a, an hour into the race? Uh, he was, let's see, his time was disqualified, but um, I should have had this written down. Hold on. Yeah, because I'm just wondering if he showed up like it was like 13 minutes before the next person showed back. Okay, 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 so so it was still an unreasonably long amount of time. Yeah, so his time, uh, he he was three minutes 13 seconds, um, but his time was I mean three hours 13 minutes. God, (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, three hours 13 minutes, and the next person showed up. Um, at three hours and 28 minutes. So. Okay. Okay. So there's a believable time at least. So yeah, he was uh, disqualified from the race, understandably. And uh, he was also given a lifetime ban from competing professionally. Wow. But uh, that must have not People must not have cared because the ban was rescinded a few months later and he went on to win the 1905 Boston Marathon. So, but um, what does it take to actually win this race? I bet you're wondering. I will introduce you to Thomas J. Hicks. Hicks took the lead in the race um, at around the two mile mark and he kept the lead and with everybody else dropping like flies, you know, he actually managed to have a considerable lead. But by mile 16, he was severely dehydrated because it's freaking hot outside. And uh, he begins to ask one of his trainers that was driving behind him for some water. His trainer refuses to give him water. What? Yeah, he just flat out refuses. But you want to know what he does do? Uh, He's like, I won't give you a drink of water, 
but I will sponge out your mouth with some warm water. And, and also I'll give you some egg whites. How, how is that? He needs a protein. Yeah. Hmm. What, what, how is this coaching decision going, Jamie? Well, on a scale from one to 10, they're at a solid zero. Nice. Nice. Well, it gets worse because of course it does. Hicks, he does continue to go for a little bit, but um, he keeps pestering for water and his coach is still refusing. But in addition to the egg whites and the sponging out the mouth, we get the first recorded instance of performance enhancing drugs at the Olympics. Wow. This was before those were disqualifying from competing. <laughs> what performance enhancing drug does Hicks' trainer give him, you may ask? It's called strychnine. And for those of you who don't know, strychnine is rat poison. <gasps> That's performance enhancing? Yeah, how is that going to enhance someone's performance? Yeah, so rat poison, you know, does its job. It kills things, kills people if you take it in large doses. How it works is it causes nonstop muscle contractions that will eventually suffocate you if you take too much. And so it's a stimulant. And it was believed at the time that if you gave it in very small portions, that it would stimulate your muscles, you know, to help them perform better if you were cramping or whatever. Yeah. Just make it where you can't stop running, I guess. Yeah, just can't stop, won't stop. Um, (laughs) But egg whites and rat poison was enough to get him to run four more miles. But at the 20-mile mark, he's like, coach, I need more water. I need some water, man. But what does his coach do? He says, no, I'm not going to give you water. I need to drink here. I'll take this bucket of water and dump it over your head. And so he does. And he's like, well, you know what you need? You need more egg whites and more rat poison. But you're still thirsty. I'll give you a bottle of brandy to wash it down because Everybody knows that alcohol is a stimulant, (laughs) which for listeners who don't know, that's definitely not the case. That's the exact opposite. But like this coach is the worst human being around for this job, obviously. While all this episode is going down, Lors, the guy who took the car, (laughs) actually ran past um, Hicks while this was going down and Hicks was like, how is this guy running so good for someone 20 miles into a marathon? Oh my God. I'm, this is terrible. I can't do this. But they found out that he had cheated and wasn't still in the race. And so they managed to recover and he doesn't quit right there. But so he gets back, he's still running. He still has a very long lead ahead of, any of his other competitors, but just about uh, a mile away from the finish line, 
before he enters the stadium. He runs out of brandy, but that's fine. One of the people just watching the race, standing on the sideline, just happens to have another bottle of brandy with him, and so he gives it to Hicks to drink. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So this man is drunk. He is poisoned with rat poison. He is hallucinating, like out of his mind. He does not know where he is. He thinks that he still has like 20 miles to run in this race. His trainers are like helping him stay on track. They have to carry him across the finish line, physically carry him, which of course would be disqualifying today, but it's 1904. They're just glad someone finished the race (laughs) legitimately. But yeah. Immediately after he is carried across the finish line by his two trainers, he collapses. He is too weak to to accept the winning medal, and they take him straight to the hospital. And to give you some perspective of just how unhealthy this man is, over the three and a half hours that he ran this race, he lost eight pounds. Whoa. How is that possible? Well, first of all, all the water in his body was probably gone. That's, yeah. That's probably, honestly, probably that's most of it. Yeah. For your new weight loss regimen, take rat poison and run for three hours in the <laughs> drink brandy. Heat. Yeah, and just drink brandy. So, yeah, the water. Why? A major question of this, you know, would be why are these people all getting so dehydrated? Why were they not given water? You know, these are good, reasonable questions to ask, right? Well, this is where things uh, start to get pretty dark and miserable um, from here on out for multiple reasons. But for this first one, we'll just, where's the water? I will like to introduce you to uh, a character, James E. Sullivan. It's not the guy from Monsters, Inc. No, that's uh, James P. Sullivan. So, <laughs> But Sullivan was the chief organizer of the games. And uh, he decided, whenever plotting out this course, that there would only be one water stop for the entire... 20 some odd miles. And that was one well at the 12 mile mark. And because it's 1904, infrastructure is terrible, and a lot of people are not from the area, this well would give people the shits. So, why would he do this? Why is there only one water stop that makes you shit your pants (laughs) for this entire running course? Well, that's because uh, he decided to do some very unethical human experimentation. He decided that these 32 runners would be the perfect unknowing lab rats to run an experiment to see what the effects of purposeful dehydration would be on the body. Dehydration kills people, obviously, and several runners almost nearly died in this event, but it was all for science. So it's all right. 
but that's why there wasn't any water. But also, like, so many people probably had to approve that as well. Like, I'm sure there were at least three or four other people that were like, yeah, that sounds fine. Let's do one water station about halfway through. But at the same time, there's also a man handing one of the racers brandy. Like, I don't think anybody was in their right mind deciding anything for this. (laughs) They probably had more, they had more brandy stops than they did water stops. That's true. Two brandy stops. (laughs) Yeah, we it, it probably should just, you know, become a bar run at this point, you know? Yeah, it's the best, world's fastest pop. But uh, <laughs> if you think that's bad, that's not even the worst thing about these Olympics was the unethical human experimentation. This point, I am going to uh, put out a little content warning for some people because it's going to be uh, pretty racist. It's going to be touching on some like Indian boarding schools and eugenics and white supremacy. So if that's not your speed, understandable, but just fair warning. So the St. Louis Olympics were being held, like I said, at the same time as the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. And, um, Sullivan, along with others, thought that it would be a, and it was pretty common at the time, so they weren't alone. They thought it'd be a good idea to have exhibits come in to show white people how non-white people from around the world lived. So I had mentioned Len Taoyani and John Marciani who were the first black Africans to compete. They were Tswana men who were part of the South Africa exhibit. And I mean part of because they were, they themselves were the exhibit. They were war reenactors and veterans from the then recent Boer Wars. And so they, along with several others, would participate in twice daily reenactments of actual battles they had participated in during the war. So how's that for your PTSD, right? And yeah, that they had several other events for several dis- different ethnic groups to quote, show off indigenous people in their like natural or exotic habitats. And it was basically to reinforce white people's racial superiority ego. So around 3,000 indigenous people from across the world were displaying their culture as part of the exhibit, or they themselves were displayed in like anthropological exhibits to show them in their, quote, natural habitat from all around the world, from the Philippines, Central Africa. It was a human zoo, basically. And Mm. um, this was not uncommon for the time. Several other Olympics uh, had human zoos. And the practice of a human zoo continued long into the 1930s was whenever they started to kind of fall out of favor because the Nazis did that sort of thing, but there were still similar exhibits going into the 
1960s in some parts of the world. Um, and at these particular events, 1904 St. Louis, there were even children from American Indian boarding schools that were brought to show off just how successful the assimilation policies were. And for those who aren't familiar with uh, the atrocity that was the Native American boarding school program, a common phrase that has been attributed to it was that these schools would kill the Indian to save the child. And it was very much a program of cultural genocide against children. It's, mm-hmm. it's very, it leaves a very uh, disgusting taste in one's mouth. But again, it was very normal for the time. But these were the Olympics. These were the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. You know, we couldn't just have normal white supremacy crap. We got to make it more exciting. So Sullivan and his colleague, William John McGee, got together and decided to combine the athletic interest of the Olympics with the racist ethnology anthropology of the human zoos. This results in basically a couple white people got together and was like, you want to know what would be really fun watching a bunch of non-white people compete at sports. And so they did. They threw together a thing called Anthropology Days. Some at the time in newspapers called them the Savage Olympics. Mm-hmm. This was a two-day athletic event that included 100 paid indigenous men to compete in several Olympic and non-Olympic events. Some of these events were like the long jump, javelin throw, running, weightlifting, tug of war. But there were also some specially created events that included such things as baseball throwing, pole climbing, and mud throwing. This mud these, throwing. Yeah, mud throwing? Mud throwing. These events were watched by a crowd of over 10,000 people and were one of the most popular events at these World Fair slash Olympics. These events were advertised to be a display of, quote, the savages' natural athletic ability, end quote. Um, but they, people organizing these events did not care to give any sort of formal instruction to those competing on how the events worked or what their goals for certain events were. And so they didn't do well, you know, compared to the ongoing Olympic events, which kind of reinforced their white supremacist ideology because, oh, white people are actually better, not just, you know, morally, mentally, whatever, but they're also better athletically. And so white people are just so great. And yeah, it just went in to feed that rotten mentality. Sullivan was quoted as saying that he was very disappointed with the promised ability of these indigenous men compared to their 
athletic output. Uh, quote, the Savage has been a very much overrated man from an athletic point of view. And the head of the International Olympic Committee, he was also the founder of the Olympics, called the event a, quote, ridiculous charade. And he predicted that, quote, it will, of course, lose its appeal when black men, red men, and yellow men learn to run, jump, and throw, and leave the white men behind them. Because it's not like they don't already know how to do that. So, yeah, very gross stuff. So, um, yeah, that was uh, the 1904 Summer Olympics. Jeez. (laughs) Took a nice turn there at the end. Yeah, yeah. I I hate to end it on kind of a somber note. So uh, let's uh, do some follow-up work with Sullivan, you know, and some of the other figures that were involved in the uh, anthropology days. Sullivan would go on to help organize the American effort for the 1912 Olympics, in which he barred American women from participating in the newly created women's swimming and diving events because we can't have women going around in swimsuits, even though other nations were allowing them to. Hmm. Sullivan was also inducted into the National Track and Field Hall of Fame in 1977. And he did so well. Yes. Many events. Yes. Track and field. And the AAU James E. Sullivan Award is named after him, which is given out annually to the best amateur athlete in the United States. Hmm. William John McGee, who helped organize the Anthropology Days, went on to be appointed a member of the Inland Waterway Committee by President Roosevelt in 1907 and was the president of the American Anthropological Association for a time and was also a president of the National Geographic Society, which is the one that still does like the magazines and the TV shows to this day. And he also has a mountain named after him in California, Mount McGee. So, yeah, I hate to (laughs) end it on, you know, kind of a downer, (laughs) but, you know, that's just part of the story. The Olympics that are Starting a week from now, they got a legacy of being tied to these events. And okay. uh, you got to deal with that. A lot of early Olympic history is not savory, and it does get overlooked a whole lot. And you also have the stuff going on with recent Olympics of whether or not marijuana testing, whether that should be disqualifying from competing whether or not we should even be having these Olympics in Tokyo due to the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, uh, speaking of like modern Olympic stuff and just how crazy things are, I was watching something like TikTok or Instagram or something. 
and I saw what the Olympics is doing to try and mitigate the spread of coronavirus in Tokyo. Have you all seen like some of the stuff that they have plans for mitigating no. those? I haven't heard. Mm-mm. So they aren't allowing any sort of audience members. There will be okay. zero crowds. It's um, going to be weird. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they also, um, Olympians are very horny. they have a lot of sex and so uh that's not good for coronavirus times and so uh they're trying to come up with ways to limit the amount of sex people are having they usually give out like hundreds of thousands of condoms to the olympians i have heard that like yeah they have just have them in like dishes in the olympic village just everywhere like hundred about that yeah it's like 150,000 is what they're planning on having there this year yeah of course they're like color-coded for like the olympic rings and stuff because (laughs) they gotta (laughs) make it for the memes but um they're still going to provide the condoms because like people are still going to have sex but they aren't going to have them out like in the open as they usually are They're like going to give them to the athletes and then tell them, hey, don't use these. Take them back to your home countries and like condom awareness, sex ed stuff with it. So that's going to happen. They're (laughs) not actually going to give out as like many straight to the athletes, but they do something even better to be like, well, you know, giving out condoms isn't going to stop them from having sex. Um. So they are making beds, like specialized beds that are made out of cardboard. So that way they can be recycled, but also because they can only support the weight of a single person on them. And if you like have a whole lot of vicious movement in them, they will collapse. So they are making beds that will break if people have sex in them to try to stop them from having sex. (laughs) Beautiful. And modern like, problems call for modern solutions. Exactly. They just need to go, need to go full meme and just make like a horny jail or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just have horny jail at the Olympics. Uh, but yeah, here, I'll, I'll show you a photo of them here. Here they are. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Who's to say they just don't take like the little mattress off and put that on the ground? Yeah, right. It's like they're at the Olympics. If they want to have sex, they will have sex. But like, (laughs) hey, we got to come up with ideas, you know, at the board meeting. Um, You know, what's our idea to stop them having sex? Well, we can't not give them condoms because they're going to do it. Okay. Uh, Make their beds break. Yeah, yeah. That kind of reminds me, I think it was like Sean White or some snowboarder was like 19 years old mm-hmm. and he was at the Winter Olympics. And so he had just gotten a medal, whatever it was. And he was so excited and he was getting interviewed. And, you know, it was like, so what you do to celebrate? You know, the person was asking and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going around. I'm picking up drinks. I'm, you know, talking to chicks and all this. And the lady's like, you're 19. You can't be drinking. He's like. I'm talking about Mountain Dew, baby. 
have, you, have you seen that video? No. Oh, that is that is such a solid video. I need to see if I can find that to share that with you. <laughs> I'm talking about Mountain Dew, baby. <laughs> yeah, let's see. I, th- I think it was. Sh- let's see. No, I, I, you know what the worst was? I, I kind of, I blew it and I was flying home and I almost checked it under the plane. I was like, maybe I should hang on to that. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. let it go. Were you showing people on the airplane? Were people asking to see it? Or Yeah, like, um, what happened was the funniest thing is, is the stewardess had all seen the, the games and, and they were just so excited to see me. And they're like, you have the gold? And, and I mean, I had like... I had unlimited like service after that. I was getting drinks and I was getting snacks and I mean I was taking photos in the back with all the all the students. Wait a minute, drinks? You're 19 years old. I'm talking about Mountain Dews, baby. Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) He called me baby. (laughs) That's what that reminded me of. I'm talking Mountain Dews, baby. I'm talking about Mountain Dews, baby. Put it. I mean, uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> nice. My favorite, absolute favorite Olympic interview. Um, oh, Kelvin. Okay. Two. I'm reading an article right now. And apparently in the 2016 Olympics in Rio, mm. they handed out 450,000 condoms. Exactly. So and apparently they had like big like condom vending machines and like all the athlete common spaces so like the dining halls the like game rooms or whatever well like how many athletes do they have at the olympics um Over well, a thousand. this year yeah this year i think there's going to be eleven thousand athletes like eleven thousand okay like, so it's like so that's like 40 condoms an athlete yeah it was like 42 condoms per athlete in rio like on average like, I think that's what they, like, initially gave them, and then they could go get more if they needed more. But, like, so 40 condoms an athlete, we're saying, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Rio Olympics? Apparently, Rio Olympics was over 14,000 athletes. The Rio Olympics only lasted 16 days. Oh. <laughs> okay. So you're using, like, two or three a night. So, yeah, they're saying these people are using two and a half condoms a day. So you got your morning, your afternoons, maybe one more, you know? Oh, my gosh. I mean, and it makes sense because, like, the athletes are all relatively young in the grand scheme. Yeah. Of Some mm-hmm. of them are, like, super young. Yeah. So when's when are you going to get another chance to be... 20 something and be around 11,000 very physically fit and a, probably attractive people from all around the world, you know? Well, and yeah, how many of them get a medal and then just bring in 10 or 20 fans, you know? Yeah, it's, it's just that yeah kind of thing. exactly. Like that mentality of I am amazing. I deserve to have all the sex to go with it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I, I don't blame them. No, of course not. So 450,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so many condoms. And I, I don't think they were handing out uh, condoms in the 1904 Olympics. So that's just my thought. They probably, well, there, I mean, how many women were there? 
There were a couple, actually. Um, couple. Not a whole lot. <laughs> there were, um, let's see, how many women were there? Summer Olympics 1904, there were 651 total athletes. There were six women. Six. Wow. Yep, yep. Do we have a picture of like all six of them at one place? Probably not. Most of them were competing in archery. There was also the first time women's boxing was a thing, but huh. it was just for show. They didn't medal. But yeah. <laughs> and hey, in the next year that they had the Olympics in 1908, they had 37 women. So there you go. It's a pretty big number increase, I guess. They really did Don't not have good they did not have good haircuts. Oh my god. I it's <laughs> early one hundreds, dude. We I mean early one hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. <laughs> early one hundreds. <laughs> it's a long time ago. But um one thing I would hope that our listeners uh take from like these episodes and future episodes um in the podcast would be like this theme of interconnectedness because this episode started off as just like an absurd, horribly organized event with a marathon where people cheated and, you know, it's kind of funny, but it also ties into historical imperialism and white supremacy and modern day scandals with drug testing and, even newly uncovered atrocities at the Native American boarding schools. I mean, they're all tied together. So that's history. It's absurd. It's sad. Often at the same time. Hmm. Ain't that the truth? Y'all have any closing thoughts before I close us out here? Mm. I'm glad we moved forward as a, uh, fr- from the Olympics standpoint, and also just hopefully in this world as well. Totally. Like, <laughs> it's a good thing that we don't have human zoos anymore. <laughs> or yeah, that. That's, that's safe to say. The fact that white supremacy isn't overtly like the justification for everything, you know, it, there has been progress. So, well, that's it for this episode. If y'all want to read more into these topics, leave some stuff in the show notes. There's a really good episode on YouTube by John Boy talking about this marathon. It kind of served as inspiration for this episode. And because this episode touched on the atrocities that were the Indian boarding schools in the United States and Canada, And given ongoing events, we thought that it would be appropriate for us to donate to causes helping those who were victims of these programs of genocide. And so we'll put some links down in the video description for those of you who would like to also donate, as always. We'd like to recognize that this podcast is being recorded on stolen land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkawa, and other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes, 
or you just want to say hi, uh, you can reach us at our email, which is history spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us. Our music is by Mountaineer. You can find their things at upbeat.io. That's upbeat with two Ps. And thank you guys for listening. And thank you all for going down the rabbit hole with me. We'll see you next time. All right. See you guys. Bye, guys.